Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. And what do we have today? Um, so today was actually a pretty busy day of learning. I know yesterday I focused on um, what was kind of my first crack at Morningstar. I went through the annual reports. And so today I kind of sat down and listened through the whole 2018-2019 shareholder meeting. Um, and also like the whole kind of presentation and Q&A was actually quite informative and it's definitely kind of changed my thought on Morningstar a little more. Um, If you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, Morningstar is practically a financial data company and their whole kind of mission is, what is it again? Hold on, I have to look at it. I wrote it down. Oh, their mission is empowering investor success. And so they kind of do the full gambit for individual investors as well as kind of all the institutional money managers. And something I think different that I, or I kind of realized more about what the company actually does um, from the presentation, because they kind of go through the various business segments that the company has, because they have so many different products. And so it kind of gave me a better idea. Like I think I got, I got a better understanding of their data business segment. So I think about five products in Morningstar make up about 60% of their revenue. And the biggest is the data business segment. And I wasn't really aware of what it is, but it seems like it's more of like an automatic data feed to all the kind of services that companies use. So I think the example I'm kind of portraying in my mind is, so if you're not familiar with S&P Capital IQ, it's kind of, a it's kind of like Morningstar or like Yahoo Finance where you go on the website and you look up company names and you get all this kind of financial data. But a lot of what happens for investors is that you kind of build your entire financial model in Excel spreadsheet to link to customized uh, data formulas that are specific to Capital IQ. And so then you can build your own kind of fancy model and your own kind of equity stock tracker. And eventually you don't really end up going on Capital IQ because you open up your own financial model and it just automatically just on real time uh, calculates all these data for you and it's just kind of all these kind of excel plugins that make that make it happen and it seems like i think morningstar's data um, business is kind of like that where i think a lot of uh, institutional clients that use it or even individual clients just investors in general they have a lot of kind of plugins related to the whole backlog of databases that they have with all this kind of financial information so it's just kind of all this real-time data that gets processed through it. So the more data that they have and the more kind of analytics that they also have um, creating individual data points, the more valuable it is because then you just have to have individual functions that can pull out various data points. So like, I don't know, if if the ratio of EV to EBITDA was one data point, like Morningstar would already calculate that because they already have, you know, the market cap data, they have all the debt data to calculate and all the kind of, you know, yeah, that data to create like the to get you the enterprise value, and then they have all the various income statement data to give you the EBITDA calculation. 
So learn a little more about that. And the CEO Kunal was very clear in describing how the kind of the core engine of Morningstar is the data team, the research team, and the workplace team. So data and research seem to go hand in hand um, because I think the research kind of is where the analytics and all that stuff comes in. And there's also the kind of independent research equity research report that Morningstar publishes. Although I I just don't know why investors would use that personally. It's just like if you're investing, isn't the point to just do your own research or I guess it's kind of as a supplement to it. I mean, I think that whole research segment is kind of an area that is interesting. I remember um, like when I was, when I was at a fund, we kind of purposely focused on not using sell-side research. And that was all because of this whole new MIFID II regulation that was coming in, mainly in Europe, where um, the fees would kind of get split up between how much research we're using and how much that will kind of relate to us um, paying fees to the sell-side compared to the kind of brokering and execution and all these kind of ancillary services that the sell side would do for us. So previously, if you're interested, so before Mifid 2, which I don't know what it stands for, but it's a new regulation. But before that, the way it always worked was, yeah, like when you're on the buy side um, as an investor, you have a relationship with the sell side and you kind of pay this lump fee and it includes everything from the sell side research papers to all the kind of stuff they do, like scheduling meetings with manager, man, like the CEOs and management teams of public companies to them executing trades for you and all the kind of operational stuff. And, you know, we kind of pay this fee as like a way to maintain relationships with them so that they, you know, set up meetings with the management teams we want and kind of, you know, anytime we want to talk with them, we can just kind of set up a call and they'll talk with us. And, you know, the more fees you pay, the more valuable of a customer you are to the sell side. So there's kind of that relationship, but then that's also, I think, because we couldn't really tell the difference between, or we couldn't tell how much we're actually paying for the research component. Cause I think as an investor, you want to remain independent. And I think I personally have a bias against the sell side, where I don't really think many of them have great research reports. Like they're all very like quarterly focused and very short term oriented. Although I'll say there are a few that are ex- that are I think very valuable. Um, I've had a chance to speak with a few sell side analysts who I think the valuable ones are the ones who have extreme industry knowledge. Like I remember talking to one of the uh, beverage analysts at one of the big sell side fund uh, firms out there, and like he. He used to work at all the big uh, spirits and alcohol companies like Diageo and like Constellation Brands and um, what am I forgetting? There's a big one that I'm forgetting. <laughs> oh, I, I think he might have worked at like Anheuser-Busch and um, even Heineken, but like he's kind of done the whole gambit. And so he understood how the whole industry works. So whenever I asked him about you know Anheuser-Busch or Heineken specifically, he could kind of give me the whole outlay of the industry when I had no idea. So I think those kind of analysts are super valuable compared to like, you know, the kid who just goes through business school and just only just covered the company from, you know, coming out of school. And so it doesn't really have all the industry experience and like the kind of unique operational insider information that you just can't get from a financial report. So I think that was like the added uh, value of the sell side, um, just the value of the individual research analysts. But anyhow, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. So just on the research piece, 
I'd be curious to know how much how valuable it really is. Um, but it seems like that's where a lot of the human capital element is being developed into for Morningstar. That's where a lot of the expense is going. What I found interesting is the whole workplace segment. So the workplace business unit is, it seems to kind of focus on these uh, financial advisor groups uh, who manage the retired accounts and it's kind of providing this whole platform for these advisors who have these all, all these managed, managed accounts and kind of doing a broker-dealer service for them and having a whole platform for them to kind of keep track of everything as well as even potentially like man, helping them manage money. So like you, Morningstar will provide various um, investment solutions that the advisors can utilize for their own clients. And it seems it seems like this is a potential area that they're targeting it's not i think the big six product groups that i talked about that make up 60 percent of the revenue but it seems like that's where a lot of the investment is going into and it seems like they want to kind of combat that market and they see an opportunity there and i think one thing though because it was the 2018-2019 shareholder meeting so it's based on the 2018 fiscal year it didn't include the DBRS acquisition, which changed the credit rating business to become a, material, a much bigger material part of the current business. So I would love to hear more about that uh, this Friday, I think, is the shareholder meeting. So I think I'll try to get the transcript. Um, when I was watching the video, there was no 1.5 2x speed. So I kind of had to listen to the whole hour and a half, two hour period. And uh, it was kind of slow for my own liking. So I'd prefer to read the transcript, I think, um, for this year's meeting. But overall, I think yesterday, I, when I first learned about the company, I was a little, you know, a little disappointed in some way. I kind of hoped something, or I was kind of, I guess, less certain. Um, I just wasn't sure where the moat really existed. And it, I want to say there is a moat. Like, I think, you know, their return on invested capital is kind of like around the mid-teens percentage. Not yet, not quite twenty percent. At least based on their calculations, I haven't really done it in depth myself. But um, so it kind of presents. Okay, it seems like a pretty decent business. A lot of the expenses related to human capital. So they're trying to constantly attract new talent. Um, the retention rate's very good um, all across the, the products, and I think I can understand kind of why it's a lot of their service, like even like the data portion stuff. It's not like they're. It's like a. Um, zero-sum market i think many funds uh like the institutional clients will get will have multiple services like just because you have bloomberg doesn't mean you're not going to use morningstar you can have morningstar and bloomberg as well as smp capital iq you can also have thomson reuters like you'll pay for all all of them and i and i think it's also because the fee that they encompass for the overall client's operations isn't a large fee that's actually a hypothesis um just based on what I think is a norm in the investment industry, like, you know, generally the, obviously the more assets you have, the more revenue you generate. And so the fees won't matter as much, but I think once you hit a certain kind of scale as an institutional manager, which isn't that large, I think even if you manage like 5 million, 5, 10 million, yeah, like you, you will probably end up getting cap IQ, I think. Um, I forget how, how much it costs. It might cost like $10,000 for a single license a year, I think. But there's just like that added value um, that's kind of hard for other providers to replicate. So I think there really is kind of that, there definitely is a stickiness to the product. And it's 
not that you know these guys are the best and so it's the only one people will use but it's kind of more like oh we'll use this on top of the other one but i think what Ka- what morningstar is trying to do is trying to create this whole bundle of products that can all be interrelated and it makes their kind of main data platform extremely powerful because they added dbrs and so that creates an ability to have more on the data side i think pitchbook is really the um i think that can be the differentiator like it's been that part's been growing astronomically uh compared to the other business units and it wasn't talked about much in the 2018 meeting which i was a little disappointed by but i feel like the the convergence of the private and public markets that Morningstar's executives keep on talking about where we're seeing a lot of public companies go private and private companies coming public a little later, you will, you know, now people want to have more of the both sides of the data and PitchBook can provide that, which I think would be valuable. And I don't really like talking about trends, but, you know, there definitely are, I think, a growing number of private equity uh, money forming as like the overall investor pie. And so I think that's where PitchBook can become very valuable. So overall, I was more positive than yesterday based on this new uh, set of information that I learned. But still haven't gotten to writing the full report yet. I don't know if I still will, <clears throat> but it's made it slightly more intriguing. So we'll have, to, we'll have to see what happens on Friday. And most of the day was actually focused on reading the new annual report of Spotify. So Spotify if you don't know, is a music subscription platform. And I'll kind of go over the high level again, because um, generally if I want to write a full report on it, then that's what I'll go into detail on. But so I read the 2019 annual report, read through the quarterly letters from Q4 2019 and Q1 2020. It's pretty cool how they have shareholder letters for every quarter. I think that's pretty helpful. Although I think at least the last two ones I read they're kind of similar it just follows a very similar structure and so there really isn't much information i think that's shared like when i compare it to trupanion's shareholder letter it's definitely not as detailed and they don't share as much information like like for example like churn is a number where i think it's really important to know what the retention rate of the subscribers for the product is and they don't make it very clear they kind of talk about quarterly improvements of you know like 90 basis points 80 basis points and so i think i'll have the best way to calculate that is i'm going to have to work backwards i'm going through each quarterly letter and i have a number from 2017 that came from media mydia m-i-d-i-a it's a research service um and they seem to produce a lot of research on audio these audio subscription companies because a number of research data got on Spotify came from that uh, website as well. But they had a churn data that started that ended in 2017, and I have access to all the quarterly letters 2018, 2019, and 2020, so I can probably work backwards on that. But it seems like churn is declining at least from what they say in the last few I've read but it's not like 99% at all. Like I think when it compared to Morningstar, which is like on average of a 99 to 100, it's definitely not there. It's looking more closer to um, the between the 80 to 90% mark, I think, in retention. Probably more so, I'm going to guess like 85%. I don't think even they're at 90% yet, but 
Yeah, Spotify is kind of one of those sexy companies that I think was interesting. Like, I, the reason I looked at the company was because I listened to an interview with Daniel Ek and Patrick O'Shaughnessy a while back, and um, Daniel talked about something very that I never considered for the shop, the Spotify business model, where it reminded me a little like Medium. So, Medium has a subscription service and a free service and if you have the subscription one then you have access to a whole different catalog of essays which isn't the same for spotify because spotify whether you're free or premium subscription you have access to i think the same catalog but the difference is that for medium when i submit my essays i can choose to make it premium only and free subscribers can look at it but free subscribers have a limit to I think three or five essays like they can look at per month and but every time a premium reader like kind of interacts with my essay where they heart it or they thumbs like they clap for it that's kind of like the thumbs up function so they clap for it or they highlight stuff then they've kind of quote-unquote interacted with it and so I get a portion of their the subscription revenue that medium generates from that particular subscriber so it's kind of like they're sharing the profits uh, or the sale with me. And that kind of gives me as an incentive as a creator. And so there are people who do make kind of more of a, a full-time living on Medium now, just writing full-time and making money in that way. And it creates a kind of thriving ecosystem where now you have this two-sided marketplace where a lot of writers are incentivized to produce more premium content because we can actually earn money and that also kind of probably, I think, makes more people want to become premium subscribers to have access to better writing constantly. And it's not that expensive. I think it's $5 a month, which is kind of, I think it's comparable to what is a Spotify subscription. But or how much is a Spotify? Is it $10 a month? Yeah, so I guess it's double, but still not a large um, ticket price. But it seems like the vision behind Spotify, I think the, what's it? It says, I'll quote, their mission, our mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity by giving a million creative artists the opportunity to live off their art and billions of fans the opportunity to enjoy and be inspired by these creators. And so it seems like the long-term plan for Spotify is to create this kind of marketplace where creators like artists, so podcasters, musicians can actually receive money from Spotify for the kind of downloads or streams that uh, their content actually gets and I think Spotify might actually be trying to share a portion of like the ad revenue or the premium subscriber revenue with the creator so then you kind of create once again an ecosystem that where you are incentivizing more individual creators to continuously create stuff on a platform just kind of like it's it's like YouTube right because YouTube creators do the same things too so I guess that's another business model that's similar to it and Spotify is different from Netflix where Netflix has a huge kind of upfront content capital cost that they have where Spotify doesn't. And they're kind of like YouTube where you allow different creators to kind of create their own thing. Where, But I guess a big difference is that they have to pay all this royalty fees to the four, kind of the big four music licensing companies like Universal Music, Sony, and... Um, uh, forgetting the other two but there are four <laughs> there are four big ones um but yeah so 
I think that future got me interested in the company, and I was also interested. There's like small factors that make me more intrigued in the company. The fact that it was not a U.S. domiciled company, but it was like a Swedish company, made it more enticing to look at. I like I personally find uh, companies that kind of are not actually based in the U.S. to have more of an interesting culture. I think the management also pr- brings upon a different perspective, and so like companies like. I think another example like Atlassian is something I'm interested in. Uh, Shopify is another one that's in- that I'm interested in. So companies that have he- headquarters not in the U.S., but a huge function of their market is in the U.S. I find that particularly interesting also because I find the management culture outside the U.S. Um, is interesting as well. I kind of, I think I kind of have a bias where I kind of prefer it. Like I think because kind of the CEOs I admire, although I admire Buffett, like I admire Mark Leonard from Constellation, who's based in Canada, you know, Toby Lucas, based in Canada as well, and the co-CEOs of Atlassian are based in Australia, and I really like what they're doing for the culture of Atlassian as well, so those are the kind of guys I like, and none of them are based in the US, so I think that uh, kind of planted that bias in me to find companies like that. And also Spotify did a direct listing, which I also like the fact that they didn't use bankers and they pursued this different path. I think Shopify might have done a direct listing too. I might be wrong, but that could also be a signal of kind of very prudent management that doesn't waste uh, money on unnecessary banker fees. Um, but generally, so if I kind of went over the business for you, um, the high level is that uh, they kind of split their market up into four major segments. There's Europe, North America, Latin America, and rest of the world. Europe is still, I think, the largest market for them, although North America is pretty, I'd say, comparable. Um, I think Europe's in like the 30 35%, North America's in like the high 20s, 30%, and Latin America is in like the low 20s percent, and rest of the world is just under 20%. And when we look at revenue, about 90% of Spotify's revenue is from the premium sub- subscription revenue. And then the remaining 10% is from ad supported. So that's how kind of the they make money for the free subscribers who get all these, I think, ads um, come upon in the middle or after each song or something. I've never been a free user of Spotify. I'm a, I am a premium user, though. So... I think, yeah, I kind of bypassed that phase. But it seems like they have a total monthly active user base of some, of 286 million as of Q1 2020. And out of the 286 monthly active users, 130 are premium subscribers. But I think that number also includes people who are on the six-month trial uh, in various parts of Europe from various partnerships with telcos. And that number also includes people on family plans so uh, you know the family plan where i think can have maximum of six six members each member counts as a subscriber but you're paying a much reduced fee for that and so that's why i think i'm seeing the arpu the average revenue per customer uh go down every year so from 2017 it was at around 532 euros and now it's down to 472 euros and that's been a continuous decline over the last three years 
And it seems like it's because they've kind of introduced the student plan, they've also introduced the family plan, and they have all these promotions for, you know, the six-month free trial for different te- like telecom networks as well as at the holiday three-month free trial. Like I think those are the ones that my brother has been using before. Um, so those have all reduced ARPU, which, you know, is it can be concerning because you, know, you always want to see the number go up, but we'll have to see how that kind of retention translates because it's not like if they're doing all these promotions now, I'd be more curious on, well, do these people stay and will they keep on using the subscription five, 10 years mm-hmm. out? So that'd be interesting. Like it seems like from the earnings calls that I listened to, Daniel kind of reiterates how they're thinking 10 years out. Um, so that's something I liked hearing. And yeah, I think that's kind of an overview on how the business makes money and how kind of the typical stats look. What's also interesting, I think, is how they kind of made a major entrance into podcasts. They bought, I think, they purchased Gimlet and Anchor in 2019, and they purchased Bill Simmons' podcast, The Ringer, in 2020. And they referenced how that the latest acquisition is kind of like buying ESPN because they're thinking about how radio is evolving into podcasts. And so I think they're kind of in this mode of acquiring more podcasts or audio labels um, that can replicate the function of radio. And what they've also seen is that podcast podcast listeners are much more engaged than just typical music uh, listeners because of I think the length of typical podcast episodes. And so what happens is that the podcast listeners who are on free plans end up actually converting, I think, to premium subscribers much better than just typical audio listeners. And I guess, I'm guessing it's because there's more kind of spotty ads that happen um, in the podcast when you're a free subscriber. So I think that annoyance might lead to that. Or it could also be because people want to actually download the podcast episodes because I don't think the free plan allows you to download uh, podcast episodes as well. So that might be interesting. Um, on the management front, I think the interesting things here were, well, what I like seeing is that Daniel, to see Daniel Eck on a lot of outstanding shares. And so he owns about 18.5% of the outstanding shares. And the other co-founder, Martin Lawrenson, although he's not, actively involved in management, it seems. It owns 12.1%. I think the history between Martin and Daniel is that they both worked on a previous tech company called uh, Trade Doubler together uh, before Daniel started Spotify in 2006. Um, yeah, so the two, I guess, you know, founders own collectively 30% of the outstanding shares, but the voting control, I think, they collectively have more than 75% of the voting control. And they have this unique um, certificate. It's called a beneficiary certificate where it cannot be used in exchange for stocks, but it's used primarily for control purposes. So it allows them to have control even though they don't have 50% of the equity out there, which I'm completely fine with. And so overall, I was pretty happy to see that um, Daniel hasn't taken the sal- hasn't t- taken any equity, I mean salary, or any kind of compensation really since 2017. He got paid excuse me, in 2017 because he hit a, a bonus target of having, I think, what was it, 70,000 subscribers or 
Yeah, some something like that. So he hit hit that in 2017 and got a million dollar bonus for hitting that. But yeah, in the last few years he hasn't gotten paid. Most C-suite executives, their salaries range from like 250 to 560. Total comp is around seven million all in. Um, overall, thought that was reasonable. What was interesting was how seven of the eight directors on the board chose to get all their compensation in stock stock options and awards uh, instead of being paid in cash. Which, and they were all out of, or most of it was out of the money stock options, which I think leads into more favorability of the long term mindedness of the board members. Um, yeah, so that was kind of on the management side. I have to go further digging into the culture and how they think about the business, but I think overall I was kind of intrigued. I was much more uh, excited about this company than I was with Morningstar, although this is much more like the earlier phase, and so there wasn't that much, I think, uh, information available. But right now, it seems like Spotify is in the market leading position, so the, I think twenty mid twenty nineteen data shows that Spotify has a thirty six percent market share approximately. I think it's probably around forty percent now, and just on estimates. Whereas Apple Music is around eighteen slash twenty percent, and Amazon is probably around thirteen percent. Um, and then there's all the other players after that. I think like YouTube has like five percent. Um, Ten cent music has about ten percent, and this is on like a global scale. So Spotify has a pretty commanding position, and I think something that makes Spotify very unique, it seems, is just the amount of personalized usage user data that they have. So every time you listen to music, they have all this data on the kind of songs you like, the kind of podcasts you listen to, and they continuously, I think, recommend more personalized playlists, and it creates a much stickier um, experience for the user. And if you were to move to a different platform, you'd kind of have to reestablish all that, and so it's kind of that flywheel where the longer you stay, the more data you're giving and the more data that they have, the more accurate they can get with providing you with more personalized solutions. And that makes you want to stay on that platform longer. So I think there definitely is some value there. Um, I think from an industry standpoint, the whole two-sided marketplace is very intriguing. Uh, it makes it into kind of, you know, like a legitimate platform in a sense because you have all these music listeners who and audio listeners who want to ha- just have just have one platform that can go to that has everything which is different from i'd say streaming services where you want to have net you like I, I personally have netflix and i have prime video and i those are the two streaming services i have but yeah it doesn't mean that i only want netflix because both have different uh content libraries whereas for music it seems like most people would probably just only have one um, and they'll just choose to listen to everything together in that one place. Like even for me, I moved most of my podcast data over to Spotify, so I just kind of refollowed all the podcasts I used to listen to on Apple Podcasts because I found the interface much better on Spotify than Apple. It kind of feels like Apple's kind of given up <laughs> on investing in Apple Podcasts, and I think that kind of plays into what I talked about previously, um, also about like Trupanion, where when you're a homogeneous product where Spotify only focuses on audio only, there's kind of an inherent advantage related to the culture of the company compared to a company like Apple or Google or even Amazon where, yeah, like they, their focus isn't audio. 
although you know Apple kind of got really popular with the iPod, but that's really not what their focus is. They're more of a hardware luxury goods company than an audio company. So I think that kind of separates things out. And then on the other side of the two-sided marketplaces, the relationship with the music licensing uh, companies, so the big four that I mentioned before, like Universal and Sony, and it's it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma situation where, first of all, obviously legally for them, those big four can't really collude, I think. And if one kind of threatened to like, you know, pull out by saying, oh, we're going to take our content library elsewhere if you don't pay up this higher price that we require from for licensing, then if they leave, then it kind of leaves more room for the other three. So they would be happy for one of the four to leave because Spotify is the largest audio streaming service and whatever music is not on Spotify will not be discovered by, you know, the hundreds of millions of listeners. So it's in the incentives of all the music licensing companies to be part of Spotify and to all kind of play nice with each other. And, you know, everybody wants their artists to get discovered. And what I'd be interested in is to see the individual labels growing as a pie size because I feel what Spotify's done is um, kind of democratize the ability for artists to get discovered and so they don't really need to be part of a record label anymore. You can just go directly onto Spotify and use the tools that they have and just produce music yourself without having to use a record label. And I think over time, that can actually be a very interesting channel. And I think that can make Spotify very strong and very independent. So I think overall, that's made the business quite interesting for me to look at. Mm. It's a shame that they don't share unit economics on the annual report, nor the shareholder letters. I might have missed it. Um, I don't know. But when I looked through them, I couldn't really find anything about just the lifetime value of the customer, how much they you know, spend to acquire um yeah on a valuation front i think it's like the way i've been valuing the comp try valuing it is quite different from most i try so i'm exploring ways of calculating the return on invested capital that in is inclusive of human capital because most of the expenses for the company is r&d and personnel and when i try to actually capitalize on the human capital expense so salaries and everything related to personnel kind of capitalizing the last uh, five years of that and calculating a return on uh, invested capital from that, it, I get something like a 30% return in current free cash flow, uh, free cash, free cash flow uh, numbers. And also my free cash flow number, uh, I've been exploring a way of subtracting out a lot of the kind of R&D spend because I want to look at the cash flow electric gate that they're earning without the reinvestment component, just kind of what the current business now is earning. Um, and that gives me something like a 5% free cash flow yield. So that makes it pretty interesting. But once again, this was only one day's worth of uh, research into it. So probably needs more time to kind of flush things out. Probably look through more of the shoulder letters, like read the 2017 ones, etc. cetera. Um, try to get more data outside because... You know, and I guess like if I were to pick a negative, yeah, like it's the shareholder letters are good. I like that they're quarterly, but they're just not as great as I'd hoped. Like you know, doing quarterly letters is pretty unique. But if you're gonna do it, then 
you know, maybe add more detail. <laughs> that would be nice, but I can understand that they don't want to share their trade secrets as well. Um, but overall, this was pretty interesting company to look at. I was pretty excited. Um, like podcasts is a big segment or industry that I'm very excited about. And so there's that personal interest related to this as well. And I can just see this company becoming very uh, powerful in the future. And what else did I spend time on? Mm. And then I also listened to the interview with Brian Koppelman on Shane Parrish's podcast, The Knowledge Project. Something I've, you know, I've, I've always been a big fan of Billions. So Brian Koppelman is the writer and producer of Billions. And he also, I think, wrote uh, Grounders. Or was it Rounders? It's the poker movie. And then he also wrote for, I think, Ocean's 13. Those are like the big ones I think he's usually known for. But so he, it was pretty cool. Um, I think a few things that I took away from that interview. One was the evolving movie industry. So the question was related to how TV shows and movies are different because Brian's been involved in both, although he started out in movies. And Brian brought up a very interesting point where he said how the lines were getting blurred with TVs and movies, and there's not so much of a difference anymore. It's rather for you as a writer... Do you want to tell a story that only needs an hour or two hours of time? Or do you want to tell a story that takes you know, 10 hours, 20 hours of time through TVs? Because people aren't really going to the movie theaters anymore, um, not as much as they used to. And many people choose to watch movies through all the streaming options. And a lot of the you know streaming providers like Netflix, they just release their movies on their own platforms immediately instead of the theater. So more and more people are watching all these um, movies and TV shows at home and it's kind of a different way of looking at it where there's no difference between a movie and a TV show it's more so there's a story that has one episode or a story that has 20 episodes so I thought that was pretty interesting to see how the whole video film industry is evolving and a little cool and also like the career trajectory also being different where Apparently, when you go through the TV career path, it's you can start out in like the writer's room as an assistant, and you can kind of make your way up in the TV world. Whereas in movies, you don't really have that, and you're kind of it's kind of a sink or swim immediately kind of deal. Where can you get your script sold, and then can you get like you know get it produced, etc. So it seems like there's been a different dynamic in the career uh, of these two different mediums. Although I'm guessing that now with the lines getting blurred, we can probably see it not being as different anymore. Like, that's a hypothesis I have. I'm not sure. They didn't really talk about that in the interview. Um, something else I found interesting is how uh, Brian, one, I think Brian's movie in 2013, I don't know what which one that one is, uh, totally bombed. It got ripped apart in Rotten Tomatoes, and probably that's why I don't know about the movie. But apparently it's so bad that he, the agent uh, told Brian to kind of, that kind of uh, take heed because they Brian was practically told that his career might be over and you have to find a way to write his way out of this hole that he dug himself into and he kind of talked about how that was a very difficult part in his life and how I think you know Billions is currently the success it is now but I think he said he also had the idea for Billions for a long time and I think he had the idea like immediately like post-financial crisis and it just 
or during the financial crisis and it just didn't pick up nobody wanted to uh make a movie series about that then and so now he's finally able to make it like you know years later but it's just pretty cool to see the kind of career arc where you know 2013 your movie fails and oh yeah like his hbo uh, tv shows got like canceled as well and so it's kind of in like this deep hole in his career but even you know he found a way to get billions on and the whole kind of podcast kind of goes through this kind of story and it i don't know i think it's just pretty awesome to hear that kind of story where yeah like you get an insight into how everything wasn't um you know roses and butterflies there are hard times in the overall career of someone who makes something pretty amazing and i think that was a part of brian's story that i'd never heard about before like i've been a fan of Brian Koppelman's podcast the moment um, and I've listened to a few of his interviews but this was a new part of his career that I'd never heard about so definitely fascinating and something I thought might be worth sharing um, if you're interested definitely check out the interview and yeah that's it for today that was the extent of the stuff I learned and hope you found something valuable out of that all right I'll see you tomorrow